Dr. Ethel Tunkelheim, an associate professor of politics at York University. This is Academic Antis. Conference season is almost upon us. And man, oh man, do I have a lot to say about conferences. Conferences are a crucial part of academics' professional trajectories. In theory, these are the spaces where we're supposed to present our work, engage with scholars in our field to make potential contacts for collaborations, and to find out new ideas that can help inform our research. And yet, conferences are not always easy for many of us. For some, our experiences in conferences can encourage us to carry on in academia. For others, they can be the catalyst to actually leave, given that they can at times harm us in ways that make clear that we're not welcome in these spaces. In my first ever conference for a professional association, I got mistaken as a server during our conference dinner. I've been in spaces where I would get questioned in a hostile way about my work. And I know talking to those of you who are people of color, who are women, who are first gen, that these experiences are commonplace. In today's episode, we will talk to two aunties, Auntie Cato and Auntie Anita, to reframe how we think about conferences. We also talk about accessibility in conference spaces and discuss whether and how we can exercise the politics of refusal when conferencing. Auntie Anita, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, my name is uh, Anita Gervin. Uh, my pronouns are she, they. I am coming to you today from Lekwungen and Pasenich territory, colonially known as Victoria, BC. Um, I am an assistant professor, professor of cultural studies at Athabasca University, uh, a mother, um, an auntie, uh, really excited to be in this place because I, I like the mentoring uh, that you've made possible here. My name is Dr. Catherine Clune Taylor. I am an assistant professor in uh, the program in gender and sexuality studies at Princeton University. Uh, I did my PhD in um, philosophy at the University of Alberta, which is where I first crossed paths with Auntie Ethel. And I'm so happy to be here to be with y'all today. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I want to say one of the things that I, I so love about this podcast and the reason I'm so happy to be here is I really love the space uh, Auntie Ethel is giving to talk about this kind of informal um, mentorship or, or webs of kind of, of, of kinship that we create in the academy because I know for so many of us, they are necessary for us being here. I'm so happy that both of you are part of our anti-network. And I think, you know, as as a younger, well, when I was a younger uh, PhD student, I had to learn a lot of these norms through osmosis. No one really guided us through these norms. And so one of the biggest norms, one of the biggest parts of the hidden curriculum in academia for me was conferences. Theoretically speaking, what are they for? And in terms of your experiences, did your conferences actually achieve these goals? So I can go first, actually. I, it, it, so in, in thinking ahead um, before coming on this podcast, I realized like conferences have played a huge role in my academic career and in my intellectual development. I have a very strange background. I started out um, in microbiology. I have a degree in microbiology. And then I ended up getting double majoring in philosophy and I had planned to go to medical school and ended up 
through my philosophy electives, kind of stumbling across the topic of intersex management in children and to like feminist bioethics and, um, you know, kind of philosophy of science questions. And I read too much Foucault and I got really kind of <laughs> creeped out about the idea of going to medical school. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh no, what am I doing? <laughs> um, and I was very lucky that at the time I was at the University of Western Ontario and, uh, it was a time where that philosophy department was a very feminist department. Mm. And so that was how I was introduced to philosophy was through this very feminist lens. And when I kind of got to the point where I was, I was finishing my undergrads, I wasn't really kind of sure what I wanted to do. Um, some of the professors there encouraged me to consider going to the Canadian society for women in philosophy conference. Huh. And in part, because one of them was like, was said to me, you know, I know you're, you know, you're a senior, like that's not really undergrads don't necessarily go to these things, but she's like, I think you would do well in grad school. Like, I think it would be good for you to go and check it out and just mm. like, see what a conference is like. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and I did go and it was great. Uh, it was, it was wonderful, but it, but it also was like the Canadian society for women in philosophy. It was a mm. very feminist very welcoming conference. Um, one that was, did kind of have concerns about things like accessibility was, and remains a kind of space that wants to be welcoming to those curious undergrads and those curious graduate students. And so that was a very important, um, first experience for me. Uh, but it was also one that later I realized like was a completely distorted view of like philosophy as a profession or discipline <laughs> <100%. laughs> or, or of, like conferences in general. Right. And so, but in a way it did set a tone for me in terms of the way I approach conferences was always about looking for community mm, as mm -hmm. opposed to the way I maybe, I think we often train people to look at them as like opportunities, um, you know, as uh, professional development opportunities or like, you should be networking, you should be going and like reaching as many people as possible and introducing yourself. And for me, I was like, oh no, I'm here to find friends. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Auntie Anita, was that your first encounter with conferences as well? Was it also about kind of building community? I mean, just curious to see whether your experiences resonated. In this, I feel a little bit like Grandma Anita um, <laughs> than Auntie. Um, I think I, I came through a little bit earlier than um, Auntie uh, Kato did. And thinking back to my own undergrad experience, it was quite alienating um, because I was attending in Ontario at um, the end of the 80s, early 1990s, when uh, a character named Philippe Rushton was debating the merit of black intelligence and coming out with, uh, you know, we were on the, on the, on the short end of that stick, um, in his hierarchy. So there were people around in my undergrad who were still, um, heavily funded researchers of eugenics and scientific racism. So, um, having experienced that as an undergrad and having had no teachers, mentors, and um, no, nobody, no teachers of color, except for my father in, in my, uh, <laughs> in my academic and, and even K to 12 education, I had a deep sense of, um, 
a, a lack of confidence entering those spaces. So it deferred by a long time my my entrance into grad school. Doing my PhD, I remember feeling both the excitement of being able to go somewhere and think. And so the privilege of going to a space like that at, as a student was really felt. Um, but I did have, you know, one of the experiences among many was um, as a student, you get to go to this great conference and you're, you know, maybe your supervisor's there and you're going to dinner with people who are, um, you know, heavy hitters in a field, uh, whatever that is. And it, the first shock was like, wow, we're going out to eat at a nice restaurant and, um, you know, there's wine and good food and all of this stuff, but then it comes time to pay the bill. Oh. <laughs> and the, the sort of, the, the way that even cheapness is manifested, <laughs> you know, where we all split the bill evenly, even though the students have had no alcohol or, <laughs> do you know, those kinds of things that come out. So it, it struck me that they're a place of privilege, but that often the privileged in those spaces have started off going to an undergrad, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're not first-gen uh, graduate students, they've they've started off doing undergrad, graduate, and gone right through, and have no clue about their privilege at being able to eat out and drink at a conference, and have no sense of their um, their yeah their their class privilege in those spaces. So yeah, I was both excited to be with those people, and also really shocked that there was no sense of equity in those spaces. That the whole notion of the conference brought back sort of excitement and trepidation because yeah as you mentioned Dr. Nisha Nath who's one of our colleagues and friends and producer here uh, we talk about holding our breath mm -hmm. in conference season and that's a real visceral feeling uh, that I've had around like okay day one you get through no microaggressions <laughs> <laughs> day two, depending on what spaces depending on what spaces you're in right and so um, yeah, I'm sure we can deepen the conversation on that too. But um, I, I am a scholar of environmental humanities. So that brings its own racial um, cast of characters. So there's a lot of white environmentalism in those spaces. Um, you tend to sort of bioregionally uh, identify, but not racially or uh, colonially uh, identify in those spaces. So yeah, there's a lot of love for nature, um, but a lot of lack of reflection, self self reflection on location and privilege. I think you know this gives us a good insight into what we hope to accomplish in this conversation. And I think what you said about you know the excitement, it's there. We're excited to go to conferences. It's exciting to intellectually engage with heavy hitters, but also you know junior scholars whose research coincides with yours. But there's this assumption in conference spaces that everyone has equal access to doing things, right? And though yes, of course, you know conferences give graduate students a, a, like a, a cheaper registration fee. That doesn't really kind of address some of the economic issues such as such as the dinner right where you know maybe it's hard for graduate students to have to pay their, e their quote-unquote equal share maybe we should think about the professors you know shouldering the bill for the graduate students and even what you said about you know holding your breath in conference spaces for some of us you know we're just so used to microaggressions and sometimes not macroaggressions i don't know if that's a term in conferences that it's a successful conference day where after day one no one's said something shitty to you, right? So it's like our expectations are so low. Um, oh, yeah. I see Auntie Cato nodding a lot. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you relate to that? (laughs) Oh yeah, completely. And I will say, so the funny thing too is in hearing you talk about that, like I remember that first conference I went to, it was in Halifax and I think my mom helped me pay for it. And it was like, that was my birthday present that year. (laughs) You know, like I'll pay half your ticket to go to this conference um, and give you a chance to like, see what this thing might be like. And if this is something you might want to do, right. (laughs) It was totally, that's how I made it work. And I, I remember having that same thing of like the dinners of like, okay, how much is this going to be? And like, what am I going to pick? And um, One of the things that's always been clear to me is we have these expectations around conferences, right? That graduate students who are, who are quote unquote serious mm. um, are going to do, you know, do a conference every year and get their, get their work out there and do the networking um, as though everyone, yeah, has the funding to do that, has the support to do that. Or also, I think one of the things we don't think about is that for some graduate students, like, um, conference season can, can overlap with like periods of, of labor to pay for school. Right. So you might be working full time. Like that's your period when you're, you're making the money to be in school the rest of the year. Um, and so I think there are these issues of financial accessibility and who feels comfortable in those spaces, right? Mm. Like beyond, beyond who can pay for the dinner, who feels comfortable going to the dinner? Mm. Right. And like, what are, what are the expectations at the dinner? Is it that everyone's going to be drinking? Is it that, you know, uh, are you going to be in the way that I frequently found myself at philosophy functions be one of maybe two women and probably the only person of color in the room. And so that's an access issue as well in a way that we often don't talk about. And then, and then I think issues as well around like whether they're physically inaccessible, Mm. whether they are, I think intellectually inaccessible, right. As someone who I know for me, one of the, one of the reasons I became very strategic in certain ways about my, about what conferences I went to or didn't go to was because, um, as someone with a PhD in philosophy, I was also very used to having to go to philosophy conferences and having the discussion be about how is it that what I was doing was philosophy. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not interested in that discussion, right? Like that's not, that's not the feedback I'm looking for (laughs) because I, I, I don't want to have that debate. And so I actually found like, those places that were hostile to me on top of being hostile, we're just not really useful. Mm. I think about that as an intellectual access issue, right? Mm. When we get into this issue of like boundary policing where, where it means that even if there are philosophers who might think that I have something useful to say, or might be interested in what I'm doing, they're not necessarily going to see me in that space. Yeah. No, I love everything that you said there. And I think we've all been on um, the receiving end of hostile conference experiences, right? Um, and I can share mine. I mean, I think, you know, I've had panels where, you know, people just didn't understand my research. They would just kind of, you know, you're 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 the junior scholar presenting your paper and the discussion just tears you apart, asks you uh, really mean kind of 
you know, not even fair critiques, right? Where at the end of it, you have to keep it together because you're at this like conference, it's a professional setting, and then you're holding back your tears until after the panel because you know that you can't cry in front of the audience, right? We've had these experiences. I've cried in conferences because I couldn't hold it together, right? And another example I can think of was I'm a political scientist. I went to a poli-sci conferences and I go to the migration panels usually because that's the work I do. And one of the presenters was like, yeah, I'm just going to like rank, um, you know, my like uh, source countries for migrants in terms of the quality of migrant stock. And I was like sitting at the back, like what, like, what do you mean by like stock? Oh, you mean in terms, oh, in terms of like their economic competitiveness? whether migrants are high quality or bad quality. And I, at that moment, I was just like, fuck you, man. And I, I mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't have like a loud outburst, but I just kind of exited the room, texted my friend and we went out for a beer, right? So you, you start getting a spidey sense of these hostile moments. And I guess just to concretize these for our listeners, I mean, Auntie Cato, Auntie Anita, do you get what I'm saying? These visceral sense that these spaces aren't for you and you just need to leave. And so thus you become more strategic about the space and the conversations in conferences that you choose to engage in. That, that resonates with me for sure. Um, yeah, feeling like those moments, I, I think probably all of our listeners have had multiples of those, but the first one I remember um, someone approaching me in an environmental humanities conference and saying, what, uh, what, what uh, panel did you just present on and can we look at it in the program? And... Um, you know, I, I was kind of befuddled by what he was doing. And I was at that time more involved in metaphor studies. So I was, I was mm. doing the metaphor of the carbon footprint was, was my doctoral dissertation work. Um, so I showed him the name of my panel presentation and he kind of scratched his head and he said, and he said, okay. Uh, and then I realized he was what's called an Africanist, <laughs> yeah. which is Generally, a white person studying African literature, or white white or white person studying <sighs> history, and he had racially profiled me to be part of his book. That he so he was he was an editor of a collection, and had you know that's a minor racial profiling. We we know of others that are much more violent um, uh, around mm. theft and and finding the most convenient black body around. Um, but yeah, that was the sense of, I think um, you've, you've talked about profiling mm. a little bit. And so how we're apprehended in those spaces um, has been very strange. And, and other times I've been asked, um, is your name, whatever, Paula? Um, and I say, no, why? And the, the person says, oh, I'm looking for, for the Puerto Rican uh, person that I'm on a panel <laughs> with tomorrow. Um, so I thought that might be you. <laughs> You know, the, the, um, so there, such are these spaces of environmental humanities, um, that they're so white that you get apprehended and profiled in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Auntie Cato, you're nodding a lot. I mean, are there kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> is it triggering yeah. memories and, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> encounters for you? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, people, assuming I was someone else or, um, often because, you know, because I am a black person, like just thinking I must be the other black person, <laughs> um, like the one other one I know who's going to be here or, 
or seeing a name of someone and there is an assumption often because I am black that I do philosophy of race, which I do some work on race, but that isn't my specialty or the thing I'm known for. And so it will happen where it's like, Oh, there's someone speaking on race. You must be that person. Uh, I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. Um, yeah. Or even certain odd things, actually, the, the funny thing was, I know Auntie Anita knows, uh, my, my very good dear friend, Dr. Kristen Rodier. And so she and I did our PhDs together with Cressida Hayes and we would go to conferences and people would mix us up all the time in a way that I thought was really interesting and strange. Um, but it was almost like, well, you're one of the feminists from Alberta, <laughs> right? Like you're one of those yeah. or you're one of, you're one of Cressida's students. We don't know which one. Um, <laughs> sometimes I would say, you know, I know we're both fat, but we are different colors. <laughs> You know, I find that, um, you know, I get slotted into these weird panels, especially when I wasn't being strategic, uh, where it's just the hodgepodge of like papers that they couldn't classify. And then they they, they, they assign you at like 8.30 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> and so you're like, OK, so, you know, I see I see what's happening here. You just don't know how to slot me. And so I think the tension is, you know why bother going to these conferences, right? But at the same time, if you're on the job market, you know, these conferences are still considered important and are still considered um, yep. necessary to show that you have the chops to be in the market. Auntie Ethel, you talked about, you know, the slot being slotted in those places. I've, I've had that too. And then the power of what uh, Auntie Kato was talking about, the networking is sort of the reverse of what happens from the powerful networking where you were left out of a space that, you know, you were juxtaposed against a, a kind of a keynote figure who's well known and you're in that slot and then, you know, have that experience that you're then not in that conversation at all um, in future uh, conferences. So, so increasingly I've been drawn to music um, as a kind of a solution for my own health in those spaces mm. Uh, which is again risky because you know if you're not understood when you're speaking, uh, like what are you doing in the space? Then even more so if you're singing in it or you've produced a song, um, you know people wonder what to do with that. Um, but I found it, uh, you know, calling on like Edouard Glissant's uh, "Le droit de l'opacité," the right to opacity. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I figure like all in, if, if we're not going to be understood in our, <laughs> in what we're trying to do with our words, I, I can sort of choose to be resonating on a different level. So yeah, that's been a kind of a, a strategic choice I've made uh, to engage my own musical being, heart, soul, and, and intellect. But I think what, what I love about this, this uh, intervention is in some ways, you are trying to seize back power. You are trying to make the conference space something that is your own and, the, and, and something that kind of subversive, subversively tries to reverse these norms as well, right? And obviously, as you said, it comes with risks. But I think, you know, we all have 
um, opportunities to rethink the conference model. And, and so in the spirit of Auntie Anita's beautiful sharing, I mean, I'm curious to see what other ways have we tried to subversively make conferences work for us, even if in doing so it comes at risk. Yeah, I can think of a few things. So, I mean, one thing, I don't want to get slotted in on that random panel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I'm going to create a panel, right? Mm-hmm. So it is the panel that I want to go to and I can hear the people that I want to hear who I think are are doing generative work in this area. I also think for me, I will say, so one thing I do is a lot of my when I go to like more mainstream philosophy conferences, I have a conference buddy. Yes. <laughs> who I met in grad school. I met in grad school, Megan Dean. She, she's at Michigan uh, state now and is, um, and so we will apply to conferences together so we can, and you know, we have our thing, we'll share a room, we'll have, you know, so that, so that if we don't want to go to, you know, the big, the big social event with all the philosophers, we can like get a bottle of wine and be in our rooms and chill. Right. Or if like just do our own thing. Um, and I actually think for me, the big thing is, you know, I realized how lucky I was to have that first experience, but I do not conform to any of the expectations around conferences. Like I will go to a conference and just go to the panels that I think are interesting. And I'm like, if I don't like the keynote, I'm not going to go. If I have those senses of like, this is going to be one of those hostile situations. It's like, that's not what I'm here for. And so I do, I often say like to, to graduate students, like, please, like I do all of the things you're not supposed to do. Um, and so I don't know if I'm a good role model in certain senses. <laughs> like, I don't know if people should be looking to me, but I found that to be far more rewarding. Conferences are exhausting most academics are indoor cats of some kind or another. (laughs) Like we're not always the most extroverted people and it's a lot of people time and a lot of performing the self. Mm. And, and so I, I often think of my energy is like my limiting resource here. Mm. And so how do I want to use it? Interestingly, you had asked um, NTFL at the beginning of like what brought us to that place or what brought us to that refusal. And I actually think for me, it was my PhD program. <laughs> like my, my, you know, I did my, I ended up doing my master's in philosophy at Western and then went to the university of Alberta to do my PhD. And that was when I realized that the very like feminist and welcoming impression of philosophy that I had gotten initially was not in fact the case or not in, in fact, like not the discipline. And, um, and so, you know, I went into my PhD program and it was very quickly, like, you're one of the feminists. What are you doing here? <laughs> right. Or like, you're not, you're not a real philosopher like the rest of us. And I think I went through just going through my coursework, like I did enough of that, defending the work, defending the interests. And I was super lucky, you know, I had, we did have a cohort of her students who we all were really supportive of each other. And Cressida was a phenomenal mentor and, and supervisor. And so we, it was very bizarre to be in this place where it's like, well, she's doing good work and people really like her. And that is feminist work. And yet, what, like, what is, what is this? Um, 
And so I think by the time I was moving into my own research and, you know, like out of, out of the coursework phase, thinking about things more seriously, I, I was already just like, I'm done having these kinds of conversation. I'm done with it. You know what? I love this conversation because it kind of is highlighting the importance of making decisions that work for you and not necessarily uh, decisions that uh, work for the profession, the larger profession. And even, you know, both of your accounts have just kind of reaching the point where you're like, I'm going to stop doing this because it doesn't work for me. Um, I think that's so empowering. And I also wanted to kind of touch on you know, the norm of conferences, period. It seems as though everyone's going back to in-person conferences. Um, what do we all think about that? I mean, the carbon footprint is a huge issue that I think we should consider. Are you all supportive of this return to in-person conferences? Yeah, I think about that a lot because of, yeah, the focus of my doctoral work was the carbon footprint metaphor, good, bad, and ugly, and what it was doing. Um, so I do think this pause in what is normal is a offers an opportunity to to reflect on our professional norms. I have to say that when, as Auntie Kato talked about, um, when a conference goes well and you meet someone, and even those moments of microaggressions when you look around and there's the gaze mm -hmm. of others that that have also witnessed that. Um, you know, there's a kind of a witness that happens in those moments when it when it does. It doesn't always happen. You can feel gaslit and alone, um, but there are those moments when that can be a profound community making uh, event. Um, so, and and thinking with yeah colleagues is really really important. Um, so there is something about the face to face that I I don't think we should outright reject, and yet. Um, as far as both research and teaching, the conferences that I've attended in the last couple of years have been wonderful. So um, I'm thinking, for example, of um, uh, a 20 year reflection on Dion Brand's mm -hmm. uh, A Map to the Door with No Return. There was a, a fabulous thing um, on that with scholars across North America reflecting on Dion Brand's work. And um, you know, that would have happened in person, but might not have been recorded. Uh, similarly, one of my best days started with uh, Caribbean artists at a, an art gallery that was supposed to have been hosted, I think, by Concordia in Montreal. Um, and it was going to be in person. It was all planned pre-pandemic, but then it had to be online. Um, so that seeing what artists are doing around political issues that, in a way that, you know, a virtual gallery space is kind of opened up to an intellectual space. And for me now I'm teaching cultural mm. studies. So I'm in this cusp between cultural studies and political ecology. So seeing artist interventions uh, and how artists are really pushing the boundaries of political actions and, and drawing attention to the worlds we're in and the otherwise worlds. Um, yeah, that's been a real gift. The, and again, that comes with a curse too, because the proliferating numbers of, uh, of of those webinars mm -hmm. uh, means that you could really be occupied by that yeah. all day. But that's been uh, really, really empowering. And, and to me, it does shift the whole conference season thing too. Um, Auntie Ethel, you're, you're in a conference now. I don't know if this is the normal time for that particular conference, but I felt like there have been sort of smaller versions of conferences 
throughout the year and you can kind of spread it out a little bit more. So yeah, I'm hoping that, um, that we take the lessons learned from this as far as especially accessibility, because a lot of people in um, people with disabilities have been saying, wow, this is a different experience mm. and they're really pushing against the normal return and at least to make these both analog and digital at the same time. Right. So I, I don't think conferences can go back to the norm being you have to show up. And the other thing I've seen is international participants, yes. you know, international students, some of these conferences that now don't have to charge as much for registration fees and hotels and everything. Absolutely. And I just kind of want to quickly interject, like, I think um, when it comes to kind of virtual conferences, a lot of international scholars say, look, a lot of a lot of us have to actually pay so much money to get visas to come to the main conference site. So that's another reason in favor of virtual conferences, but maybe moving towards a hybrid conference model, maybe that kind of allows us to capture both worlds. Since I have the collective wisdom of the aunties here, if you're a reviewer, if you're a discussant for a conference um, panel, how can you be a better discussant. So we've all had the asshole discussant who tears you apart, right? Um, but if you're a discussant and that's the only model you know, which is that, you know, you have to kind of tear people's paper apart or you have to be rigorous in order to get people to be better scholars, um, how might we kind of unthink that? And how might you be a better discussant in that you can kind of create more generative conversations. So do you have advice for people trying to figure out this discussant role? I I think witnessing other models for beautiful intellectual rigor and generosity at the same time have really served me well. Um, witnessing, you know, conversations between feminists like, you know, Angela Davis and um, Judith Butler or, you know, where you see people... Um, even Cornell West, uh, you know, people like that who, who do engage in rigorous conversation, but always on the terms that are presented. So I think that that takes a more gifted brain or intelligence. What is really in- exciting to watch for me about the whole scholarly endeavor is a brilliant mind engaging with the terms that are presented in front of them, paying homage to what is offered, mm. and then, you know, a- engaging some interesting thoughts. So to me, that always looks 10 times better than when the phallus comes out as, <laughs> the, you know, the, the phallus co- emerges and as a show, a showstopper. <laughs> It's it, it's it's an ugly bearing. I'm sorry to, to use that metaphor, <laughs> there, but it's an ugly, ugly thing to see when it you know what you describe, um, Auntie Ethel. I think, and and those of us who are interested in doing this work coalitionally um, and transformatively can see that pretty clearly. To me, I always approach giving a response or being a discussant with with some generosity, you know, you don't know, you don't know where someone's at with these ideas, but what you do know is that they are putting them out there because they want feedback, right? Like they want, Mm. they, if you've submitted something, you think there is something there and, and you want to engage with it and you're invite, like, you know, whenever you submit a conference paper, part of that is an invitation 
for people to engage with it. And I always go in with the assumption that we're all looking to make our ideas better, right? Like we're all trying to work our way to the best version of this, this argument, this, this set of ideas. I always come with that, that, that kind of understanding of generosity or that approach of generosity. And I, and I think if you maintain focused on that, right? Like I, I don't see why you need to get into that fighting or that debate or that trying to like tear things apart. Right. Like even if, even if it's someone who's, you know, like working within the canon you're working with and you actually think they're going in a real problematic direction, right? Mm. There are so many ways you can talk about that (laughs) and it doesn't need to be the way that makes them feel the worst, right? Mm. Like I can still have a lot of appreciation for you attempting to engage the thing, Mm. right? Like you're, you're taking up something that's real difficult. And maybe it is that like, there are certain pitfalls that you don't see. And it might be that I see them in part because I've just read like three more books than you. (laughs) And Mm. like, that's the whole difference. Right. And I often think too, if I've been asked to respond, it is because somebody feels that I have something generative to say. It is, it is true that sometimes, (laughs) sometimes it's going to happen to all of us that like, sometimes we're going to give conference paper that later we're like, Uh, I maybe hadn't like fully thought that through or someone's going to say something and they're like, Ooh, yeah, that was a big thing that I'm missing. Um, but that, that doesn't need to be a negative destructive experience at all. What, uh, Auntie Kata was saying kind of made me think about different contexts and positionalities that made me want to shift my response a little bit. So yeah, I think different people matter in different ways around how we respond to them. So yeah, I agree with everything Auntie Kato just said, but also thinking with that asshole guy that um, Auntie Ethel you're talking about, sometimes it's okay to be brusque with those people, right? Like they don't really get it. They don't have an embarrassing or shameful moment in ways that others of us do (laughs) around those. Like, so yeah, I think if someone has the floor and is a very powerful person in that place, I think it's okay to be a a little more um, aggressive or, (laughs) you know, to, to really, you know, not, not embody the, you know, the, the, the affect of diplomatic woman in all, in all sites, right. To, to let the anger flow at times is also okay in those moments. Uh, final question, how do you build community and conferences? I mean, I know we're kind of hinting at that, but for a lot of early career scholars, they're like, okay, you talk about building community. Do we just like go to panels and try to get people to be your friends? They're like, do you have like concrete advice, maybe one piece of advice our listeners can, can build on as they listen to this podcast on how to build community. I think for me, I am, as I said, like I'm always super strategic about conferences and talking to grad students about conferences, I would always say to them, like, think about like what you want to do for your CV, like the important CV part of it. And then the part of it that is important for you and like Mm. have the CV thing you need to do just be one thing, maybe one or two, right? It's like, I'm going to give this talk and I want to talk to this one big fancy person and that's it. And then the other stuff, like, 
let the rest of it be about stuff that is going to be helpful and generative to you. So like find the talks that are exciting to you, even if they're not the most attended ones or like not the fanciest ones, but the people who are, are intellectually stimulating and generative for you and that you want to get to know more and just, you know, say hi to those people. Like, I think it's hard as a grad student. <laughs> it's going to be very intimidating to just say, you know, hi, I, I just want to tell you, I really love your work and I'm working on in this area. And I just wanted like to say thanks for this presentation. And, you know, it can just be as simple as that. Um, and sometimes it's more, right? But I think that's a good way of doing it, right? Like it, it, it I, I think it's very important, especially if you're someone who's, you know, coming from a marginalized community, like where you might not be, the conferences in general might not be spaces that are made for you. And I think it's good for us to just like acknowledge that, that these spaces weren't, weren't made imagining that people like us were going to be in them. and. And so figure out what part of that you want to take and what you want to leave and then, and then make the rest of that space or that time, um, something that is going to be, uh, enriching for you. Um, and sometimes that does mean you have to like <laughs> get up your nerve, but like, I'm not going to lie. I'm often the person who's like at the end of the line waiting who will be like, hi, mm. I just want to say I love your book, <laughs> right? Like, I am like really shy and can totally be like that. But sometimes that's it, right? Like, that's all it is. Just and or letting someone know like, oh, I'm, I'm working on something similar. And the truth is a lot of other folks are looking for community as well. They might be very excited to hear that there is someone else who's also looking at this project or also you know, taking this kind of methodology. And so, you know, give it a try. Just throw yourself out there. But I know it's weird. And have, have a, and the conference buddy is a handy person to have for when you have to go and do all the awkward weirdness. And then afterwards, you can come back and just hang out with them and be like, oh, I don't want to think about what a nerd I just was. I mean, it's always really daunting, but I find the conference buddy helps diffuse the awkwardness as well, right? So, you know, as you're standing in line to try to talk to the panelist, you can talk to your conference buddy as you're both standing in line rather than kind of just awkwardly like doing your dance and being like, I'm just waiting here and trying to talk to you. So I love this. I love all of these pieces of advice for community building. And I love how we are in this course of in the, in the course of this conversation talking about ways to subversively redefine conferences in ways that will make it work for us. All right. Well, thank you both so much um, for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. As I reflect on what Auntie Cato and Auntie Anita shared, I'm thinking of how the pandemic has given us a pause to reconsider and reflect the disciplinary norms of conferences. Are there ways for us to rethink how conferences are organized and how we ourselves work within these sites? Conferences can be fertile spaces for community building and can present possibilities to shift norms. We can also figure out which conferences and which conversations to have in these conferences that work for us. I invite all of you listening to think about how we can make conferences into generative spaces. What relationships can we intentionally cultivate, whether as discussants, as colleagues, as people who are interested in exploring the same broad research topics, to ensure that generosity and kindness prevail? How can we dismantle inequities within conferences? How do we call for greater accessibility? 
How can power imbalances be rectified or at least ameliorated? How do we encourage intellectual generosity? Let us know what you think on Twitter at, at Academic Auntie. And that's the show. Remember to spread the word about Academic Aunties by telling others about the podcast and rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And check out academicaunties.com support to find out more ways to help the show. One of these ways is to become a Patreon supporter. And on that note, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest Patreon, Yasmin Abulaban. Thank you so much, Yasmin. It means a lot to us. Today's episode of Academic Aunties was hosted by me, Dr. Ethel Tungohan, and produced by myself, Dr. Nisha Nath, and Wayne Chu. Tune in next time when we talk to more Academic Aunties. Until then, take care, be kind to yourself, and don't be an asshole.